brilliant. So, uh, yeah, as has been explained, we're in Daniel chapter 9 today. Uh, the book of Daniel, we've, as we followed, has followed God's people in exile. God's people carried off, taken away, put into Babylon. And the first half of the book, we followed Daniel and his uh, three friends uh, through various troubles and uh, trials. Yet, time and again, God has proved to be the, the God, the king of all. Um, and the second half, we're into this um, second section where we're getting uh, visions. Visions, um, which are full of rich imagery, but again, reinforcing the point that God is in control and that his, he is going to establish his kingdom forever. Let me pray again, um, just as we come to Daniel chapter 9 this morning. Father, thank you that uh, you are the merciful God, the great, mighty, and powerful God, the covenant-keeping God. And this morning, please, would you again show yourself to us and show us how we should respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Everything's a bit of a mess, isn't it? A bit of a mess. Political chaos. War. Economic uncertainty. And that's before we get started on any of the details going on in any of our lives. Bad choices that we've made that are starting to uh, have effect. Said something to someone that we shouldn't have said and now relationships kind of broken down. Facing pain through no fault of your own. It's all a bit of a mess. Uh, And instinctively, I think we know that this is not how it should be. And Christians know that this is not how it will be. We know that there, is, uh, there are great promises for the future for his people. But the question is, is, how do we keep going when those promises for the future feel a very long, long way off? And in fact, they may feel so far off that we may even have started to doubt that they're going to happen at all. We started the book of Daniel a long time ago now, didn't we? But it's maybe that we've kind of forgotten what a mess God's people were in. You know, and particularly, actually, um, as we saw Daniel and his friends, um, no, don't get me wrong, they went through a lot of difficulties, but but they were kind of promoted and um, were um, put in positions of prominence. But the the book began with seeing that the people were, uh, the king and the people were handed into Babylonians' hands. And they were brutally defeated. So the, the temple, the, the place of God's presence, the temple was ransacked and, all of, and the precious goods were taken away into Babylon. The city was conquered and then battered and broken down. And the people were killed or then carried off into exile. You see, God's people were in a real mess. But there was going to be an end to this mess. There was going to be an end to the exile. That's what we find um, described in verses 1 and 2. Look look down with me here. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in his books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, so Darius is now king. 
Um, now, in case you get confused, um, elsewhere you might see him called Cyrus. Uh, there are two possibilities, because it's either Darius or Cyrus who, who issued the decree for God's people to go home. Uh, two possibilities. One is that um, Darius was kind of served under Cyrus. Personally, I think probably more likely is that they were the same person with different names. Um, just think of our royalty, okay? So our queen's father, he was King George VI, um, but his name, Albert. He kind of, kind of his name and his, his royal name. So it's a, perhaps something akin to that. But anyway, Darius is king, and uh, by now, God's people have been in exile for 66, 67, 66, 67 years. They've been there for a long time. And Daniel is getting on a bit. He's in the 80s, 90s. But one day, Daniel is sitting down and having his quiet time. And he's reading Jeremiah. And he recognizes that their problems, their desolations are going to last for, for 70 years. So let's just kind of see those. So firstly, um, Jeremiah 25, 12. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And then chapter 29, verse 10. Uh, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Here's our, our kind of first point the end of the exile, well, it was predicted. It was predicted. God sent words to Jeremiah, and he wrote down that it was going to be 70 years. Now, Jeremiah's prophecy was given at least 40 years before the events of Daniel chapter 9. So these were, written, these were told a long time before. But after 70 years, God's judgment was going to turn from his people to Babylon, to the nations, the wicked nations. And he was going to bring his people back to Jerusalem. Now, 70 was probably not meant to be an exact number. Again, numbers are highly symbolic, particularly in, in prophecy and apocalyptic writings. So seven, the number of perfection. Ten, the number of completeness. You times those two together, 70, this kind of perfect, complete time. So the 70 years was a set time, it was a long time. In fact, we could say it was a lifetime. But God sent his word and said, no, I will bring my people back. I will bring an end to the exile. Babylon are going to be brought down. They are going to be judged. And the people will return to Jerusalem. Or as verse 2 puts it, the desolations of Jerusalem will cease. The people, the city, the temple were going to be restored. And Daniel, as he reads Jeremiah, even if we're kind of 70 isn't meant to be literal, but, but he kind of recognises that this end, that this 70 years will be coming to an end fairly soon. And indeed, it started. Because the fact that Darius is king now is, is proof that the Babylonian empire has been brought to an end. And indeed, from the history books we know, and elsewhere in the Bible, we know that soon Darius will issue that decree that God's people will be able to go home. So the end of the exile was predicted in God's words. Jeremiah said it. Secondly, I want us to see that the end of the exile was prayed for. I think it's interesting that Daniel's first response to realize, reading God's word and realizing that this exile was going to last for 70 years, it was going to come to an end, 
his first response is to pray. It's not, hey, God said it's going to happen. Great, sit back, relax, not long to go, and let's wait for it to come in. God's promises in the word should always lead to his people praying. And in fact, the, the promises his word give us confidence and motivation for our prayers. And so the, the most of Daniel chapter 9, as we'll see in a moment, is, is Daniel's prayer. And it comes in two half, halves. Firstly, he, he cries out in confession. And then the second half, he, he pours his heart out with pleas to God. But he starts by declaring who he's praying to. Let's kind of read it and I'll, I'll kind of interrupt myself as we go through. Verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Here he is praying to the great and awesome God, the covenant-keeping gods. He, in fact, says, I pray to the Lord. You notice there it's capital letters, Lord. That's, that's Yahweh. That's God's covenant-keeping name. And it's the only, Daniel chapter 9 is the only time God is referred to as Lord. A particular reminder that God is the one who is faithful to his people and keeps his promises. But the great, awesome, covenant-keeping, steadfast, loving God then sets the contrast for his people. It shows, actually, their actions are even worse. And, and Daniel starts his cry of confession, uh, as he does that in verse 5, to spot the six ways that God's people have turned their backs on God. So verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to the people of the land. Six ways in which God's people have turned their backs on God. And as a result, verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that um, they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of our Lord. Uh, of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us in, in his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. What, what horror that God's people would act like that to the gods who we just saw described at the beginning of his prayer. But yet, even in his judgment on the people, God is faithful. Verse 11 goes on. You see, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. 
For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. You see, God had said when he made the covenant with the people, he said, if you obey me, there will be great blessings on you and the people in the land. If you disregard my word and you turn your back on me, well, then there will be great cursing and punishments. And that is exactly what has happened. But it even gets worse. Verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favour of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Do you just notice that word, yet? God has brought this calamity on the people, and yet they've done nothing about it. God's righteous judgment was meant to bring them back to their senses. They were meant to see, oh, I've gone wrong. This is what happens when we disobey the Lord. And despite that calamity, they didn't turn from their sin and they didn't turn back to God. Verse 15 then marks the, the, um, the, the, the movement from crying out in confession to, to pouring his heart out with pleas to God. Verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Daniel here remembers the Exodus, that, that great saving work of the Old Testament where God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. He has done that a great saving work, and Daniel remembers that. And he asked that God's wrath would once again turn away from his people and would, um, he would restore Jerusalem. That's kind of shorthand for the, for the city, for the temple, for the people. He asked that God's face would once again shine upon his people. Let's see that from verse 16. Uh, o Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servants and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear to and hear. Open your eyes and see. Our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel cries out and says, Please, Lord, bring an end to this exile. Restore your people. Restore your city. Turn your wrath away from Jerusalem. Would your face once again shine upon the temple? Would you end these desolations? And did you notice the, um, the, the, the reasons, the, the basis for Daniel's pleas? 
Twice we find in those, those um, verses that uh, for your own sake, my God, for your sake would you do this. Uh, something I read this week, it said, look, Daniel batters heaven with appeals to God's honour. You see, in the exile, if we could put it this way, kind of God's ruined his own reputation. You see, to observers, it seemed like, well, God is simply another little local God over his people in Jerusalem, and he wasn't powerful enough to stop them from getting steamrolled by the Babylonians, just like anyone else, and, and they're victorious gods. So when God's city and God's people were in shameful disgrace, well, God's name was too. God's no, no, no different to any of the other little gods of, of the world. And Daniel pleads with the Lord to reverse all this, to restore his own name and reputation. So first off, we saw that the end of the exile was predicted in God's words. Secondly, it was prayed for. The response of hearing God's promise that it was coming was Daniel to cry out in prayer, to confess the sins of himself and the people, and to ask God to come and act to restore them once again. Now, in case you've been wondering, where's all this weird imagery gone of the last two weeks and that's coming next week? Well, once again, Daniel is given a vision. Um, and this vision is, is perhaps some of the most hotly contested um, in trying to work out what it, exactly it means. Um, but before we, we look at that, let's just keep in mind the purpose. Why was this vision given? Let's pick up the reading from verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill, uh, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me swift, in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. It's about that. So, so God sends Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, to come to Daniel, and you kind of missed it. He said it multiple times. He has come to give understanding. Daniel. He's come to, to help him, uh, to give him knowledge and help him to understand. And so this vision is not incomprehensible complexities for people thousands of years later to debate over exactly what he meant. Okay, he, he came to give clear understanding to Daniel. And so, yes, there are uncertainties over some of the details. But as we read it, again, the big point, the overarching point, I think is actually very clear. We'll see that in a moment. But so, so Daniel's been praying. He, he's asking God to forgive. He's asking God to restore the people. And then in this vision, God effectively says, yes, I will. Okay, that's the big picture of this vision. Yes, I will. But perhaps not how you expect. Okay? Daniel prays, forgive us, restore us. In this vision, God says, yes, I will, but perhaps not how you expect. So here's our, our final point. At the end of the exile is 
promised. Let's look at it together. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. You pause here. Seventy weeks, seventy, and again another significant. Uh, seventy again. This is the main topic of debate. What does seventy weeks stand for? So it could be seventy weeks. If you, uh, if you see your footnote, it could be kind of seventy sevens. Is there a footnote there? Uh, yes, seventy sevens. Um, some people think it's seventy weeks of sevens. Uh, so you kind of it could be like four hundred ninety years. Um, I think it's all a bit of a red herring. The important thing to note is, again, there is a fixed time. And the important thing is those six things that God is going to do in this time. I'm looking at them again. In this, this 70 weeks, whatever exactly that means, he's going to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, and atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, seal there is kind of authenticate, to um, approve of, seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. That's the important thing that's going to happen. God, in this 70 weeks, is going to do those things. And then these 70 weeks are divided up into four time periods, with four leaders or rulers. That ring bells from some of these other visions? Four, four? Four time periods, four um, uh, rulers. So verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end of the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's try and kind of unpick, unpack these things. So first off, we have this seven weeks until, verse uh, 25, the coming of an anointed one, a prince. Now, I think this is probably referring to, uh, to Cyrus, to Darius. It could be Ezra or Nehemiah. But either way, you get this time period from when the word goes out to, to build, it, um, build the temple again and this coming of one who kind of carries it through to rebuild everything. That rebuilding happens in the second section. So um, for, and for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat. Jerusalem is rebuilt. And hey, the temple and all that is great and is kind of 
um, there's this kind of uh, the moat and things, it's possibly talking about the waterways in Jerusalem. It's kind of all established. So everything's kind of back again, but it's a troubled time. And that, again, probably talking about the time of having God's people come back, we built the temple, but then still living under opposition, um, living under enemy kings of the various kinds, the Greeks and, and so forth. And then after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall come. Shall, uh, one, sorry, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And again, here, I think this can be, I'd say more confidently, be none other than Jesus himself. What does the word Messiah mean? It means anointed one. And here is this anointed one who's come and then shall be cut off. Then as we go, go on, we, we see that actually again, um, it, towards the end of verse 26, the city, um, well, let me read from the middle, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So once again, things are really going to turn on their head. And again, probably this is talking about um, Titus, the Roman emperor, who would come and, and ultimately destroy uh, the temple and much of Jerusalem in AD 70. So th- that's the kind of time period. That's what, those are what I kind of think those events are talking about. But again, the, the big picture, I think, is clear, isn't it? In that time, verse 24, God will finish the transgression, put an end to the sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal, kind of authenticate, approve of the vision and the prophets, and anoints the most holy, uh, most holy place. God is going to do that. He is going to bring an end to ne- the exile, but it's not going to be as quick and as simple as simply picking God's people up from exile and plonking them back in Jerusalem. It's going to be 70 weeks, 77, hundreds of years, whatever it may, it may be. Return from Babylon wasn't really fully the end of the exile. Yes, the people were back. Yes, Jerusalem was built, but it was a troubled time. The city and the sanctuary were destroyed again. There's war, more desolations. And they were going to have to go through all of this until the very end of verse 27, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Yes, God will bring an end to this exile, but it's going to take longer than expected. Now for us, the primary fulfillment of this isn't in the future, but actually is in the past. In the sending of the Messiah, Jesus, he has brought an end to transgression. He has uh, put an end to sin. He has atoned for iniquity. And he did that through his death when he was cut off. When the Lord Jesus was cut off for, for sins, but not his own, as the great hymn says. When Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he was cut off, he made an end to transgression and sin. Um, atonement was brought for iniquity. He brought in righteousness for his people. He, he sealed, he confirmed and assured God's words. And he anointed the holy place. You see, God's people, all of God's people now, have the Holy Spirit living in them. 
a temple not of bricks and mortar like the temple the Jews are looking forward to, but uh, living temples, God's people with the Spirit in them. I think it's significant, isn't it? It's a, we saw Gabriel once before in Daniel, but wh- where else do we, we see the angel Gabriel in the Bible? That's a question. Jesus' birth. Right, just before that, who, who does God send to bring you to Mary and Joseph of this coming baby? Gabriel. The one who has explained to Daniel that one is going to come and bring an end to this exile although it's not going to be quite as you expect, he is the one who comes and gives the news of birth um, or of the this, this saviour, Jesus, to his parents. No coincidence, I think. Jesus is the one who paid for sin completely, who restores the people, anointing them with the Spirit to make them living temples. But even this isn't the ultimate end. We, as it were, live in this final half-week We are still living in time of opposition to God and his people, waiting for evil fully and finally to be destroyed. And we still live, in one sense, away from home. That's why we've called this series um, Faithful in Babylon. We are still uh, not at home. We are waiting for the new Jerusalem. So John writes in in Revelation, and I, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's what we look forward to and wait for. The Lord will surely bring an end to the exile. He will surely restore his people. And as we draw to a close, let me me, um, draw out two implications for us. Firstly, the importance of confession. This restoration depends on God, his, uh, his name, his glory, his character, his mercy. And yet God does this rest, rest, restoring work through, um, through his spirit and through as people confess their sins to him. See, confession is a vital part of this rest, restoration work. And so can I just uh, kind of flick back and and note a couple of characteristics of this confession? Firstly, um, this confession is personal. Did you notice how Daniel included himself in this, much of which was done actually before his lifetime? Yet he recognises his own um, sin in it too. Confession is personal. Confession is heartfelt. Verse 3, we saw that he was doing this with, with uh, fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This wasn't a token gesture of, oh yeah, let's confess our sins. It was heartfelt. It was detailed, it was specific. He went through all kinds of uh, very specific things that God's people had done. It was God trusting. Littered throughout this confession are references to God's character, who he is. And so even when broken by sin... It's so important that we remember God. I'm going to confess something to you. I hope my mum's not watching. Um, but, but when I was a youngish te- teenager, I was burning a candle in my room. It wasn't a kind of cause it, like ambience thing. It was a, more of a kind of pyromaniac stage. Um, so I was bur- burning a candle, and, uh, and it, I knocked it over and kind of ended up with um, wax all over the carpet. 
Now, my first instinct, right, I try and put it right. Scrub, clean, blah, 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 blah. none of that worked. So what do I do? Cover it up. Literally put something on top of it, hide it away. I don't quite know what happened when they moved house. But, um, and I think that can be our instinct when it comes to God as well. When we, we've done wrong, when we've, we've turned our back on him, first instinct is to try and sort it out ourselves. And if that doesn't work, cover it up, forget about it. We're actually, we see here, the right response to that wrongdoing is to pray, to turn to him. And the first question is, have you ever confessed your sins to the Lord? Have you ever turned to him and recognized uh, how you have turned your back on him and called out to him to have mercy on you? If you've never done that, that is the starting point to restoration. Do that even today. But secondly, confession, well, sorry, firstly still, confession is not a one-time thing. Confession is, is part of the path to restoration. And so Christians, even daily, it is right that we confess our sins to him, doing all these things personal, specific, heartfelt, not just, oh, yeah, I should do it. But again, can I encourage you to build that into your prayer lives, daily times of confession to him. So firstly, the importance of confession. Secondly, wait patiently and confidently. Wait patiently and confidently. We don't know when the ending is going to come. We don't know when Jesus is going to return and end these desolations and the desolator. It could be any time. It could be a long time. But as we wait, we do wait patiently, for we know it is coming. We, we wait confidently, because we can look back at and see the work that Jesus has already done. We see that he has already brought an end to the exile. We see that God promised to rebuild Jerusalem, and it was. We see that the Messiah would come and be cut off, and he was. And we look forward to his return, and as we wait, we wait with confidence. As a way of um, immediately putting this into practice, you might have noticed that we didn't have our confession earlier in the service. Uh, we're going to join together now in a confession. And what we're going to do is we're going to use um, the words of Daniel's prayer, of kind of pretty much word for word. I've cut out quite a bit and I've changed the odd word here or there. We're going to join together in, in confessing our sins to the Lord. And so again, as we do that, please, please do it heartfelt. And using these different words, I hope, will, will help us to personally reflect as we pray to him. So we turn our faces to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Again and again we fail to listen to your servants, the prophets, the apostles, or the Lord Jesus Christ. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame because of the treachery we have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs shame because we have sinned against you. To you, O Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness. You are righteous in all the works you have done. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayers of your servants 
and to our pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your people. O Lord God, incline your ear and hear. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Restore your people for your own sake, O Lord, to God, because your people are called by your name. Amen.